Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, we're bringing you a panel discussion featuring Betsy DeVos and Sal Khan that was delivered as part of Acton University Online 2021. The panel was moderated by Jeff Sandifer, entrepreneur and founder of the Acton School of Business. An educated citizenry is fundamental to securing a free and flourishing society. Innovation, technology, and entrepreneurial endeavors are transforming education in many ways. This panel examines common myths about learning and the provision of education, highlights great entrepreneurial efforts to improve its quality and accessibility, and explores what the future holds in providing an education and secures creative opportunity, growth, and fulfillment for everyone. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of ActonLine on our website at acton.org slash actonline. If you like this program, you could help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. ActonLine is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. The uh, world of education may not be changing, but the universe of learning is uh, rapidly as we move towards a more learner-driven world. And it's our task today to paint a optimistic but non-utopian vision of that future. Uh, I am honored and really overjoyed to be joined by Betsy DeVos uh, and Sal Khan, Betsy's accomplishments as Secretary of Education and Sal's as an educational entrepreneur are the stuff that legends are made of. However, I consider both of them friends, so my introductions are gonna be a bit more uh, personal in nature. I first met Betsy when we served on the earliest of Acton Institute boards almost three decades ago. She was as young and full of energy as she is now, and I, um, well, I looked and sounded like this. Um, I admire Betsy because she's the kind of principled world changer who will actually roll up her sleeves and get in the trenches. She reminds me a lot of my wife, Laura, and her dedication to principle, to God, and to serving others, and particularly her willingness to wade into the swamps of Washington, D.C. as a citizen um, to serve her country are among the things I admire her for. Sal Khan. I think if there were a Nobel Prize in education and it were awarded honestly, the second of those ifs might be more difficult than the first, uh, Sal Khan would look like an Olympic swimmer with at least six Nobels around his, his neck. I consider Sal Khan the Norman Borlaug of learning. I first met Sal uh, before he was famous um, and immediately knew he was a rock star. Now that didn't matter much because everyone else that met Sal knew he was a rock star too, including our joint mentor, Bill Solomon at Harvard Business School. One of my favorite things about Sal is when he came to visit us in Austin and he walked right past Laura and me at Acton Academy and said hello, but walked right past us and sat down with the learners and was delighted to be with students learning from them. And one thing I noticed was he purposely sat beneath them to in a way symbolize that he was there to serve them. So it is a great joy to be with both of you. We've been given a difficult task. And so let me outline what what we've been given. I was asked um, for you to imagine that you were in the same world we have today, but there were no existing educational institutions, no traditional schools, no regulations, no unions. Just like a country with known telephone landlines in a world of fiber optics, you have the chance to leapfrog the past, hobbled only by human nature. The question is, what would you put into place for young people and adults so they could learn, grow, and prosper together, and why? Uh, Betsy, you won the coin toss, so I'd like to ask you to lay out your vision for what that future would look like, and then Sal and I will follow up with questions. Well, let me start by saying thanks so much, Jeff, for um, hosting, moderating us here today. And um, this is uh, obviously a topic about which I have cared deeply and passionately for decades now. 
And the headline that I would offer is uh, very simple. It's uh, trust students, and, uh, believe in students, excuse me, believe in students and trust families. Um, and my vision for a world that did not have a system or systems of uh, formal education would be very student focused. It would be um, focused around the fact that every single child is unique and different and has different interests, learns differently. And much like uh, you have, uh, I think, so uh, wonderfully been able to demonstrate through the variety of Acton Academies that have arisen over these last years, uh, there's a hero in every child and it's just waiting to be uh, unleashed. Um, the vision would include in equipping families with the resources. Uh, and, and today we spend uh, significant resources to um, send children into a system that for too many is not working. If the families were empowered with those resources to make the choices about what is best for each of their children, uh, we would have a, a plethora of creative approaches and solutions to helping every child become what each what each one of them is meant to be, and given the the freedom, the flexibility to um, pursue that those those uh, initiatives and to explore um, those different approaches to unleashing and uh, equipping every hero would um, result in. A, a, a entirely different landscape than we know today. It would be a world also in which every single educator is uh, highly trained and honored and, uh, and compensated for the important um, contribution that they make to each of those children's success, very different than what we see in too many cases today. So it's it's a it's it's a simple I think a very simple approach, but one that um, if we were to back up and start over again and and really put families in charge, I think we would I know we would see very different results for kids around the country and around the world. So I know that that you've been in many classrooms as as a parent, as a volunteer, of course, as the Secretary of Education. Can you paint a picture for me of what it would look like if I walked into a studio or a classroom and in one of these schools that you imagine? Well, it would so there would be very there would be many different pictures because there wouldn't be one approach or one solution. Uh, again, acknowledging that every student has different uh, different interests and different things about which they're particularly curious. And um, I, I think about walking into the classroom uh, that my two oldest granddaughters share today at an Acton Academy and seeing the um, engagement, the excitement, the, uh, the feeling the energy in the room as each of those students is really pursuing his or her goals for themselves and helping their fellow classmates in um, and challenging them to pursue their goals as well. Um, by the same token, I could walk into a school um, much like I have across the country and um, and and uh, see a very different um, a, a very different kind of an approach, one that may be a lot more uh, structured, more regimented, or more formalized, depending on the needs of the students in that the, that particular classroom or that particular school. So there is no there is no one vision for or one picture of what that would look like again because every kid's unique and there's no one size fits all solution. So Sal, I'm going to invite you to join me as a skeptic here. So our, our job in this segment with Betsy is to to be this to say, well, but what about? And I'll start off, and then you come in. What about standards? If everything is different. How do we know, Secretary DeVos, how do we know that the children are learning and they're reaching their goals if every school is different? Well, for one thing, we are, because parents would be, families would be in the position of making those decisions, they're going to become a lot more um, 
uh, adept at uh, asking the questions that today they feel unempowered to ask. And, and in fact, in many cases are told they shouldn't be asking the questions. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not here to suggest that there aren't goals and, and, uh, and areas and topics that students um, generally speaking, need to learn, but I am suggesting there's a whole lot of different ways to navigate to get there, and um, and every student learns at his or her own pace in this world as well, uh, and is not held and accounted uh, by you know the amount of time that they spend in their classroom or in a seat. And so uh, the first point or the first place of accountability comes when families are empowered with the, the uh, ability to choose the education setting for each of their children. And uh, I, I think this last year has uh, demonstrated to families far and wide how important this is when in fact they have been in many cases disempowered from making any of those decisions for their children and have, you know, it's laid bare um, the problems of a system that we have had in place in this country for over a hundred years. One more question, I'll go to Sal for something skeptical from him. Um, if you think about the goal of learning, and in Acton Academy, we talk about learning to learn, kind of the system of learning the process, learning to do, hands-on learning, and learning to be, kind of who you're becoming. And then you contrast that with the current system, which is more about learning to know. Which of those four, for you personally as a mother, grandmother, citizen, which of those four are the most important for you? Well, I think, I mean, it starts with learning to learn, right? And, um, and then it gives way to learning to uh, do and, and uh, you know, out of, out of learning how to learn, uh, you learn how to do. And I, it's, it's a continuum, really. And I think um, there's, there's no uh, one piece of that is more, that is more important than the other. Um, they all have to work together and, uh, and, and really um, feed into the next, uh, the next level of uh, challenge and the next level of opportunity. And um, and so I, I would I would put them all uh, as as important, but um, you cannot learn to do until you learn how to learn initially. Sal, how about a skeptical question? If you were in the if you were on the other side wanting to question, what would you ask Betsy? It's hard for me to be too skeptical of that because I, I agree pretty strongly uh, with with uh, Secretary DeVos is saying. Um, I, I think it's eminently implementable, I think it, it it really just boils down to making it tangible and creating pathways for, for students. So I, I I actually agree wholeheartedly with what Secretary DeVos is saying. Can't even get you I'm to play the role of a skeptical. Thing. It's hard. All right, well, Sometimes it's well, easy. Well, let's, let's throw it to you then for your vision. Uh, we'll see if Secretary DeVos will be skeptical on the side here. We'll both try to be serious. So, so let's hear your vision. Can I just jump in a minute and please, please call me Betsy. I'm no longer secretary. So it's Betsy. Okay. <laughs> So, Sal, what's your vision for this new learner-driven world? How would you describe it? Yeah, as I was saying, it's hard for me to be skeptical because when you asked me the vision and, and wanted a headline, mine was eerily similar to Secretary DeVos, or Betsy's. Um, it, it was, uh, you know, I, I thought of immediately when I responded to your email, do empower, don't control, which is very much in line with believe in the student, trust in the families. And, you know, this this is the vision that I articulate all the time to the team at Khan Academy, but I believe it's it's not just Khan Academy. It's the whole system I would do if, if we could architect it from scratch to your prompt. You know, I think there's, I, I think there's, the, the way I think about it is you need a baseline layer, a baseline architecture for the entire system that aligns people on what's important. How do you achieve it? How do you prove competency? How do you connect that evidence of learning to real opportunities in the world? And so there's three pieces to that. One is, can you make all of this core academic material, learning material from pre-K through the core of college available. If we focus on one country, available to everyone in the country, our mission at Khan Academies eventually make it available to everyone in the world. Uh, it's not just explanations or instruction. It should be practice. It should be feedback. It should be assessment. The second pillar is provide as many supports as you can as students and families and teachers need them. Uh, so the baseline support can be 
you have on-demand videos, you have unlimited uh, software to practice, you get as much assessment as you need to prove your mastery. But ideally, on top of that, if you need it, you can have a really vibrant, and I think most students do, a vibrant classroom environment where the teacher is able to monitor where students are. And before you have this one-shot final exam, because now kids are learning at their own time and pace, teachers can do focused interventions with students, certain students, have the students invested in each other and tutor themselves. Uh, if you need tutoring, you know, we, we just launched last year this effort called schoolhouse.world, another not-for-profit around giving free tutoring. Once again, another support on top of that. So layer as many supports as people need to meet the student where they are for it to be student-centered. And I'll highlight, you know, uh, Betsy mentioned this notion of personalization. I think this is key. There's, there's two or three ideas that people talk about, but they're all mixed together. There's a, the notion of a growth mindset. There's a notion of personalization, a notion of mastery learning, and a notion of competency learning and, or competency-based learning or credentialing. And they're all connected. And mastery and, and growth mindset, it's very in vogue amongst educators to talk about growth mindset, that you shouldn't just say, I'm smart or not, or I'm good or bad at something. You should say, hey, I only know how good I am if I keep trying. Failure should not be stigmatized. If I'm in an 80%, let me keep working on it until I get to a 90 or 100%. But we know that our traditional education system really doesn't reinforce that growth mindset. If we take a test on basic exponents and I get an 80%, in most cases, a C gets put on my grade book and I'm labeled a C student, which is kind of reinforcing a fixed mindset that you're okay or you're not that great. And even worse, and this connects to mastery learning and personalization, that 20% that I never got the opportunity to incentive to improve on, it's going to bite me later on. And then I maybe have a 10% gap when I learn negative numbers and then a 30% a gap when I learn decimals. And then all of a sudden I'm in an algebra class and the equation has decimals, negative numbers, exponents in it. It doesn't make sense to me. And so this notion of mastery learning, which I view as the, the, the other side of the coin with growth mindset is if you're in 80%, it just means you haven't mastered it yet. It doesn't mean you're dumb. It doesn't mean you're not not capable. And so keep working on it. And this goes to competency-based learning. Instead of it being based on how long you sit in a chair, it should be based on, do you have the skills uh, that are relevant for whatever, whatever you're trying to signal to the world? And it could be academic skills. Can you factor a polynomial? Can you, you know, how's your reading comprehension, your writing? Uh, but to your point, it can be it can be a portfolio of your creative works. It could be evidence that you're capable of doing something or that you've gone through certain experiences. And if we had very a very clear architecture to your prompt of these are the competencies that the world cares about, either to, to get employment, to go to graduate school, uh, or frankly, just to be a, a vibrant participant in a democracy and be a healthy and happy and purposeful human being, well, then the system can leverage tools like Khan Academy or even create other tools and create in-person supports to lead everyone there. And some students might be able to achieve competency A in two months. Other people, it might take when they're 30 years old, they realize they want to go there or 40 years old, and it might take them two years, but it's okay as long as they eventually show that competency. So um, let me ask you a question, Sal. When we talk about competency and, and Khan Academy's adaptive learning, particularly in math, in all areas, but in math is just brilliant. So if I want to learn the skills of math, I can't imagine a better way to do it. When we go to, to the more um, uh, softer skills, whether it's leadership or even writing or speaking, you know, it becomes a little harder to measure in the same way. And my question for you is, how much time would you spend on average on the, let's call them the core skills, the hard skills, uh, versus the softer skills you would need to learn in more of a project-based way. So how would you split up the average day, 50-50, 70-30? And then I'll ask Secretary DeVos the same question after you finish. Roughly speaking, and as you know, we have a, a school out here, Con Lab School, which is very similar to the Acton Academies and, and, and somewhat inspired by a lot of what y'all have done there. I would say on average, it'd be 50-50, but the real answer it should be, and this is, I think, in line with what Betsy was saying, it should be what the students need. Some students are going to be able to master those foundational academic skills quite quickly, and then they have more time to uh, do the exploration, do the portfolios, do, you know, uh, fine-tune and even document some of these, uh, these, these softer skills. There's also ways to do them at the same time. On schoolhouse.world, the way that we're able to give free tutoring is that we're leveraging volunteership. And a lot of these volunteers are high school students and universities. University of Chicago has publicly announced this. Uh, several other very uh, selective universities are about to announce that they are, they are going to view, if you are a highly reputed tutor on schoolhouse.world, 
that not only does that show that you know that material because you're able to teach it, but it shows that you have strong communication, you have empathy, you're willing to devote your time for other people. So all of these soft skills, these signals start to form. And these are obviously honing all of the above. Uh, there's another not-for-profit that I'm, I'm the chair of called Hello World. You can go to Get Hello. It's an app uh, that we've done with Schmidt Futures to think about a new way. Uh, Eric Schmidt re- created this RISE scholarship, which is to identify really high potential young people and when they wanted, reached out to us and said, hey, w- could we come up with a creative way of finding these kids? We said, look, there's the traditional academic skills, your mastery on Khan Academy, your AP scores, SAT, whatever. Those matter to, to, to some degree, but there's other things. There's how well you communicate, your sense of humor, your empathy, your creativity, your resilience. What if there's a way that we could measure that? And the way we're doing it is it's an app and we're giving students prompts. We say, you know, you have, you have an hour, tell, make us laugh. Or um, you have a month, you know, go build something that can solve this problem and document how you came up with it and why you think it's going to be successful. And then it gets peer reviewed in a, in a systemic way, in a systematic way. Um, and then we actually get a very strong signal. Uh, and, and we've seen the peer review mechanism is just as good as when you have expert reviewers, a very strong signal of, wow, that, that student is pretty solid in math, strong in reading comprehension but off the charts in creativity, off the charts in sense of humor, off the charts in communication. Well, and I would say that's something we've seen at Acton Academy, which is almost all, as you both know, peer-driven, is the quality of the peer reviews, even at a very young age, is as high as we can see from adults. And if, and, and also, more importantly, uh, empowers and excites them, because if I get a review from a friend or a peer, then I really do have to improve it the next time around. So until I get a critique and it's time to improve, um, you know, it, it gives me even more motivation. Uh, Betsy, what, how would you answer this kind of skills, uh, hard skills or core skills versus soft skills question of, of how you would decide both the mix and then the softer skills, how you measure mastery on those? Well, again, I think it uh, it really depends on the child. It depends on the situation they are learning uh, the environment they're learning in. And uh, while Sal has said, you know, approximately 50-50, uh, I think that, you know, that varies, it, that will vary from child to child, from uh, classroom to classroom or studio to studio. And and really, um, I, I don't know that that it, it really behooves anyone to try to have a, 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 a set percentage um, of doing one thing versus another um, because there's so many different ways of integrating these different skills. And uh, there again, there is no one singular answer that's going to be uh, right for every single child. Um, I, I, it's fascinating listening to Sal's uh, uh, recitation of all the different um, opportunities that are being developed today. And this is very encouraging, I believe, for families who are looking for more options and other experiences for their children. Those are the kinds of things I think we need to be focused on and not not uh, you know, dwell in um, for a, a specific formula um, for one, you know, one approach to uh, doing learning differently than we've done it before. Again, more um, creativity, more opportunity to explore and test out ideas and, and uh, more opportunities to um, provide different options and different pathways for students is what we need more of rather than um, moving from one approach and one system of doing uh, education to now another that is basically imposed on all other students. That, that's, a, that's a great caution. You know, one of the things that's been fascinating, we now have 250, uh, more than 250 acting academies in 25 countries. And while every child is different and on a hero's journey, we are seeing some things that are common uh, across cultures. One of them is how much we can compress the skill-based learning. And, and Sal, I don't know what your data has shown, but, but you know, ours is more limited because it's only a few thousand students. But we're seeing in um, roughly 18 minutes a day, five days a week, 36 weeks a year, kind of uh, first grade through high school, that students can master uh, calculus 100% mastery on con, which is very difficult, uh, with no adult help at all. And so what we've been able to do is compress the skill-based time 
into a very small kind of component. And then that expands the time the students can do more personalized work in apprenticeships. And we've also noticed that they move very quickly on standardized tests, but that quickly parents don't care at all about the standardized test because they realize it's the soft skills that, that matter a lot more. Um, I'd love to ask each of you kind of to, to move to the next segment. Who do you see doing this well? I mean, who do you have out there that are heroes? I think about, of course, Sal Khan's one of my heroes, uh, Sugata Mitra in Mumbai in the slums uh, show with young children uh, working with nothing more than a computer monitor. Uh, Sal, Sal and Betsy, who do you see out there that's doing this well? Um, and, and what do you like about it? Well, first of all, I do I do mention what y'all are doing at Acton a lot. So uh, even if, if even if you weren't here, Jeff, I, I would I would cite y'all as being one of the the lighthouse examples of of how to do personalization well and what's what's possible. You know, there's a teacher that I I met about a year and a half ago uh, who he teaches in I believe it's Hesperian, California. It's in the Central Valley. Uh, most of his his children are are first generation. Uh, parents uh, haven't gone to even have a high school degree in many cases, oftentimes uh, English is a second language. And this is a sixth grade teacher who his all 90% of his students, when they come into his classroom historically have been two to three grade levels behind. And he's a great teacher. And historically, when he went through the traditional motions, uh, and he's very passionate about what, what he did, he saw that the kids were about, were getting about a grade level of growth in his classroom. Now, on one level, that's great because clearly those kids weren't getting a grade level of growth every for the previous five years or six years. But it also wasn't great because at the end of one year, they were still two or three grade levels behind, even though they made a, a year of progress. And what he did is a, a kind of a, a leap of faith, almost out of desperation initially, but he kind of met, went to an active model where he did two things. He had all of the students start at kindergarten on Khan Academy and work all the way through the uh, arithmetic content. And then he had them simultaneously work on the sixth grade uh, course on Khan Academy, going at their own time and pace, mastering concepts, using class time to monitor where students are, do focused interventions with the kids that were struggling, have the kids do group uh, uh, help for each other. And he is third year in a row. He has seen that 90% of his students, they start two, three grade levels behind. By the end of the year, 90% of his students are at least one grade level ahead. So they're seeing about three grade levels in a year uh, just over the course of this, of this math class. And this is a, a group of students that I think a lot of the system, a lot of people, even well-intentioned people, to some degree, sometimes don't believe are as capable. Uh, but when you have a teacher like this and there's a leap of faith that, look, the only thing holding these kids back was that the system thought it was okay to keep promoting them while they had these debilitating gaps in their foundations. And no one kind of took the time to provide the opportunity incentives for them to fill in their gaps. And we know where that leads. We know 70% we know of all kids in America, when they go to community college, have to take remedial math. Remedial math is not 11th or 12th grade math. It's sixth or seventh grade math. So the, the, and it, the numbers aren't much better at four-year colleges. So the writing is clear on the wall that in the traditional model, we keep pushing kids ahead. They accumulate 20% gap, 30% gap, they finally get to college and the colleges say, you're not even ready to learn ninth grade math yet. We're going to make you go all the way back. And we know that this is a huge predictor of all sorts of bad things. Instead, you have to do what Tim Vanderberg does. And, you know, even within Khan Academy, I, I tell a lot of our team, like we got to make the Tim Vanderberg model, the model that more people, more people practice. Well, I, you know, I'd like to build on what you just said. One of the big surprises for me in the 12 years of, of kind of seeing the Acton Academies emerge is I would have, you know, thought IQ was really important, and and you know, it, it, it's better to have a higher IQ than a lower IQ. I'd like to be six feet tall and have hair. I just, you know, I have to deal with what I've got. Uh, but what we found is, you know, while having a higher IQ is nice, it's actually conscientiousness that matters most, and you know, that's something that has to be done in a tribe in a setting, as you're saying, Sal. You know, rewarded uh, by not being just all the time telling you what you're not doing well but actually showing your progress, even if it's on first grade math, because if you're doing first grade math well, even if you're older and suddenly you're doing second grade math and pretty soon you're caught up. We've had learners move seven or eight grade levels in one year just because they learned to actually be conscientious and they got encouragement. Uh, Betsy, I'll turn the same question to, to you. Um, heroes, real world examples as you've traveled around the country, what have you seen that's working well? 
So I, um, I'm going to cite a couple of examples of uh, schools that one would consider more traditional, but are, are taking more of a non-traditional approach um, because I think they are answering the call in some ways. It's not uh, maybe to the, ex the, the personalization to the extent that we're talking about here, but I think about uh, the Thales Academies in um, South Carolina and now North Carolina as well. Um, you know, Bob Luddy, the founder there, making really high quality um, private education very affordable for uh, students and families in the areas that they're serving there. I think about um, the work of Step Up for Students in Florida and John Kirtley, who's led that so capably and really um, leveraging the impact of school choice programs in Florida. Um, extensively so that families there, more and more families in Florida are having more and more choices and options and, uh, and, and staying laser focused on continuing to expand those opportunities for families. I think about um, the school that my husband founded about a dozen years ago that is a charter high school focused on aviation and aviation as a convening theme for the students there and to where today there are 600 high school students from uh, seven or eight different counties around West Michigan uh, choosing to go to this school focused on uh, the convening idea of education. Many of the students coming in in ninth grade, four or five grade levels behind where they should be entering ninth grade and how those students' lives uh, and their trajectories are totally changed. I think about um, the Woods Learning Center in Casper, Wyoming that I visited very early on in my tenure as secretary, where um, in Casper, uh, the you know district-wide um, families are given the option of choosing within uh, any school within that district. And um, this Woods Learning Center, where teachers are running the school, uh, it's not a traditional administration, as you see in so many of the others, and where um, students were engaged in ways that I had not observed in many other traditional settings. I think about um, the Design 39 campus in San Diego, um, rooted in design thinking, and um, you know the teacher, the, the the whole staff there who were thinking so differently about how to help ignite kids' uh, curiosity and their learning. And um, you know, I could go on and on and on about a, a variety of schools that I visited that are doing things differently and um, are you know, expecting the best of the students that they're serving and have um, set high expectations. And I think you know, that's what it all comes back around to, um, expecting that students can and will do well, that they can excel and helping them find their path to doing that. So I'd like to to, to move. I, I love the idea of you talking about Dick School and and uh, you know using a passion for aviation. I mean, there's there's nothing like wanting to pass your instrument check right to get you to work on math. You know, you want, you want to make sure you get the math right so you pass. But but I want to move to what I think might be a um, a knee jerk reaction by some, and that is the cost of all this. You know, the cost of personalization. And you know, we have acting academies now that are below fifteen hundred dollars per learner per year. So we're finding ways uh, to do this very inexpensively. And so I'd like for you to imagine on this blank you know, sheet of paper, uh, this vision you're designing, how do we both provide lots of personalization and keep the cost down to where families can afford it? And either examples that you've seen of that or experiments that you can imagine where that could happen, where we could begin to drive the cost down to where almost any family uh, with the proper sacrifices, you know, can, can afford to at least pay pay part of the tuition. Well, I, I would um, begin more broadly by uh, advocating this notion that um, you know we've we've funded systems and buildings historically, and I, I think we need to change the dialogue around that to actually funding students. And if we talk about funding students and empowering families with the uh, resources that are funding those students, um, you, I, I think, 
I know we will ultimately get much more informed consumers. Where we have seen um, education savings accounts enacted, uh, families are asking questions that they haven't had to ask before. They're making demands of the education settings that haven't been made before. And uh, again, empowering families with those resources will ultimately uh, drive more creativity. It will ultimately drive more um, uh, cost-conscious pricing models and, uh, and, and will change uh, the dynamic that we have lived under for over 100 years again. And I, and I think that uh, it, it's, it's thrilling to hear about uh, an Acton Academies that are able to deliver um, a quality experience uh, for a $1,500 a student. That's, I think that is very possible for others to emulate and, and, and achieve, but will only do so when a much broader group of people are ultimately empowered with those resources, frankly, that are already being spent, um, but just directing them to the students, via the students, not into systems and buildings. Sal, how would you address the cost question? Yeah, you know, if, if, if we had a, a competency-based architecture where you knew what were the set of skills or, or things that someone would need to showcase uh, in order to have various opportunities, then the whole ecosystem would then, would then be there to serve students and families uh, as they need to achieve those. And that core architecture that I described of the core academic materials, making it personalized, the software, um, uh, the, even the free tutoring, uh, even the credentialing of saying, hey, you definitely know this material. You know, this, is, this is the core of what Khan Academy does. And you know, we've grown a lot over the last 10, 15 years, but our budget is the budget of a large high school, and we reach over 100 million folks every year. We had 12 billion learning minutes on the platform. And, and in theory, for the same cost, we could have had 120 billion learning minutes on the same platform. Our server costs would have gone up a little bit. Uh, so there's a, a world where if you did this at a state level, a national level, international level, you could, you could get that core architecture down to fractions of a penny per hour. Now, that's not going to be sufficient for every student, although it is sufficient for some students. I mean, there's some incredible stories we hear from all over the world uh, of, of students that were given up on and they were able, once they became conscientious, to your point, once they became motivated, they were able to take these resources and race ahead and, and do incredible things with their life. But we know a lot of students, most students also need uh, extra support. So that's why we did the free tutoring. They ideally, especially for younger students, they need an in-person setting where they can build their social emotional skills. They can learn to play. They can have their motor skills develop. But once again, if you had a, a, a benchmark of like, hey, this is what the students should be able to showcase, and it was transparent, then you have a situation where families and eventually students and families can say, okay, I could use Khan Academy for this. I could use Lexia for that. Um, I could use this course on OutSchool for that. My local system does something really cool for, for this part of my education. Uh, and I'm going to get the supports that I need as you get into later education, whether you're a college student or maybe you're a laid off factory worker at 40 or 50 years old. Once again, you can use Khan Academy, you can use Coursera, you could use edX, but then you might need to supplement that. Your local community college, once again, can instead of just having these traditional associate degrees or the four year colleges having these traditional diplomas, they say, OK, we're going to help you achieve competency on this, these other these other tools. And then you just layer on. Uh, what other what whatever supports necessary and and actually you're going to only give the supports when they're needed but also be able to calculate much more clearly what the social return on investment is uh, and I think uh, I do agree with with Betsy that um, you know making everything transparent and giving you know my 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 whole theme was do do empower don't control so you know the more more optionality that we give to to students and families I think I think the better. You reminded me, I was with Vernon Smith, who won the Nobel Prize in economics, and he was uh, bragging on Khan Academy because he had to go brush up on his linear algebra. And he said, if I'd only had Khan Academy back when I was <laughs> back when I was in school, I would have sailed through. So even Nobel economists are brushing up on their math. Uh, with he might have Khan made something out of himself that he had Khan Academy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so 
I have two two things. I hope we have time to get to both. I want to I want to touch on the very earliest of of learning uh, in the elementary level, and then go to college quickly. On the earliest level, one of the mistakes we made at, at Acton Academy early was pushing a lot of our academic um, encouragements and structure down in elementary studio. And now we're experimenting with something radical, which is making almost all of elementary uh, game-based. And when I say game-based, I mean like Duck, Duck, Goose and Dodgeball and chess. And then we believe we can actually drive a passion for learning how to read, write and do math from playing games. My question for you is not something quite that radical, but it is, you know, at what level should we start stressing academics heavily in his elementary school, the right time or too early? You know, should we be more play-based at earlier ages or should we start the academic work um, right at the start? I, I, I could take a stab at that. I am, a, you know, some of my answers based on the world that we're in. I do think if a student is eight or nine or 10 years old and in the world we're living they aren't able to be fluent at some of the core academics around reading and mathematics they're going to compare themselves to others and they're going their, their self-esteem and their confidence is going to start getting hit and and that's going to have a, a kind of a negative snowballing effect you know my question is a little slightly different because we're seeing we're seeing even with the games they actually come out stronger on the academic skills so the question is should you stress the academic skills Oh, I see. And, yeah, it's just slightly different. You know, and and I love what you're describing. I, I also believe, and I would love to learn some of what y'all are doing, because I, I, I agree that a lot of um, a lot of the core skills in elementary school can be learned in this way. And if anything, a lot of times we, you know, in the standards process, we create this huge list of things and that students end up learning all of them kind of okay. Instead, focus on the stuff that really matters, but make sure students get mastery in it. And you can, especially elementary school content, you can for sure learn I, obviously most of the math in elementary school you can learn playing monopoly and risk and and calculate probabilities playing cards and i mean even that, that's it's in the middle school and high school math there yeah. uh, reading comprehension obviously if you're playing a role-playing game or something like that you can do a lot of reading comprehension uh, so i agree now i will say my one caveat is if some if certain skills are slipping through the cracks it is nice to have something to make sure that they're that, that they are they're they're getting fluent in it you know, I'm a little yeah. bit of a traditionalist when it, when it comes to something like multiplication tables. If it's happening through game, game awesome. But if you have to make up a new game for it, I, I, I think it's important for the kids to, to get it. No, and in fact, I can't imagine that we would we would always use you know adaptive testing on con to see if people were learning the core skills. Hmm. The question is, can you deliver them in more of a game based way? But I'm I'm, I'm with you 100. Yeah. That's a, your your thoughts about you know when do we let childhood or how long do we let kind of childhood and games versus you know, high stakes academics, when, what's the right dividing line for that? Well, uh, not surprisingly, I would say there's no uh, one uh, one approach or one cut and dried uh, answer to that. I, I think um, I would I would tend to agree with Saul a little bit more that I, I think it's a, probably comes to a matter of uh, it being intentional um, and helping helping illuminate to a, a child that may be resistant to um, learning, you know, learning the early fundamentals of reading. But if you happen to catch them expressing an interest while game playing or while doing some other things to be able to help guide them um, toward that rather than uh, letting that moment pass. And I think that um, it's fascinating to hear about the research that you're doing, suggesting um, some you know slightly different approaches to helping uh, children attain these core skills. And I, I would not disagree because I mean I think if you probably scroll back you know 50, 60 years, there was a, a different approach to those learning those early skills than we've seen in the last couple of decades or three decades. And so I, I, I think, again, um, there's not a one-sized-fits-all answer or approach to um, this question, but it, it really, again, points to the need to have a lot more flexibility and a lot more, allow for a lot more creativity and um, allow for a lot more exploration of what works for 
each individual student based on their needs and the way they learn? So we have less than 15 minutes left and we could spend, could have spent the whole hour on this next question, but I can't let, let uh, the opportunity go not to ask it to you. So you know, we're asked to imagine this new world of learner driven world. We've got a blank sheet of paper and the great hockey star Wayne Gretzky said, you know, you always skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it is now. So when it comes to college and apprenticeships and having people equipped to go out and change the world, um, how would your new blank sheet of paper think about college? I mean, is it an expensive tool that's useful sometimes? Is it necessary um, for some social reason? I mean, how do we think about college in this new world? I would start and say, I think we have to think of higher education much more broadly than we have culturally talked about college these la at least during my adult lifetime. Um, you know, the subtle or not so subtle pressure to go to a four-year institution and um, pursue some course of study at a four-year institution only for the sake of going to a four-year institution, I think that day has passed. And, um, and, I, and I'm, I'm very hopeful that um, students' experiences over this last year where many of their institutions didn't open for any kind of in-person learning has, uh, ha has begun to raise more questions with, uh, with families as they prospectively look at you know, what comes after high school. And I think that, I mean, I'm, I have, uh, and I'm sure you've, you've both been seeing a lot more evidence of uh, employers taking things into their own hands and creating um, alternative pathways because of the, the need on their end. And I, so I think this is, I think this period of time is one um, that, that, ha that has the potential for great creativity in this area to really um, address the reality that many students or many, many young people um, have a, an opportunity to pursue really meaningful work and, um, and uh, futures without a four-year experience in college, but something more or something beyond uh, their 12th grade education. And there's, there's a lot of blank spaces in there yet. Um, we've seen a lot of creativity and a lot of new developments in the last few years in this area, but I think, uh, I think there's a lot more opportunity there. You know, one of the simplest and most powerful things we've done with Acton Academy is starting apprenticeships you know, as early as ages 10, 11, or 12. And we're now seeing the fruits of that at the high school level. Um, I'd say 40% of our graduates are uh, at least deferring college and in many cases getting jobs and even six-figure jobs that they couldn't get after graduate school, uh, much less after a four-year degree. So we're really seeing the power of apprenticeships. Sal, how do you think about college in this, in this new world? Yeah, you know, college is interesting. Um, it, it, I think for the last several hundred years, we've confused correlation and causation with college. If we go back two, 300 years, especially to England and Western Europe, uh, university was really finishing school for uh, nobility. Uh, it, there wasn't a question of a job. You you already inherited a ton of land. You're a duke. You're a prince. You go to Oxford for three years, uh, and it, it's kind of a bit of a finishing school. Or you go if you want to become a member of the clergy or something like that. But over time, I, I think there's you know the way we as human beings are conditioned. If there's people that are higher up the social ladder than you are, you aspire to do the things they do. We see that with celebrities all the time. If celebrities are wearing a certain piece of clothing, everyone wants to wear that, that same piece of clothing. Uh, and then oh, as, as things evolved, especially here in the US, because of that association with those uh, with means had college degrees, people said, oh, maybe college degrees give you means. And there was maybe some truth to it. But once again, is it causality or correlation? And we've still have that mindset all the way to today. And it became somewhat self-fulfilling because once the people with college degrees got jobs, they said, hey, I want to hire more people like me. So even though they sometimes recognize that the set of skills that were taught weren't necessarily applicable to what the job requires, we also have a human bias to hire other people or work with other people who've done things similar to us or have a similar background. So it became a self-fulfilling thing. 
you get to the, the, the time period we are now, we know that college is incredibly expensive and, and a lot of places, a four-year college will cost the same as buying a house outright in, in, in most of the country. Uh, at the same time, employers are saying, there's all these grads, but they don't really have the skills that we need. Some of them do, but a lot of them don't. And so that's what Betsy was talking about. You have some of the, the most elite employers with, that have the, the most skilled jobs not being able to find enough college grads, uh, places like Google, places like Amazon, uh, that are now creating their own uh, credentials, their own certification. So my, get, my gut sense is where we're evolving to is you're going to have multiple pathways. Historically, when you said college, no, not college, there's always been a stigma with the not college. Those were maybe the kids who couldn't make it to college. But to your point, Jeff, we're seeing more and more kids who could easily go to Harvard, but they're choosing, hey, I'm going to spend a couple of years doing an internship. I'm going to work here. I'm going to do that. You know, maybe, and then we are seeing kids who go to the fancy schools, but they still realize they don't have the skills. And so then they're separately getting the Google certification or they're going to a hacker uh, boot camp, or they realize that they need an internship or anything like that. So you're going to have these alternative pathways. And a lot of times you hear folks in universities say, well, it's just an important coming of age experience. You're learning how to learn, you build friendships. And that's true. I've had some of the best friendships from college. I met my wife in college. So that was a priceless experience for me. And I, I, I would want anyone else to have similar types of experiences, but that doesn't have to be the only way to do it. You could imagine uh, that you're learning and doing internships while you're traveling the world with a cohort of 20 or 30 friends and mentors. Uh, I think that would be as rich of a coming of age experience as uh, you know being on a, on a traditional campus. A traditional campus, I think, will always have a place. It'll be good for some folks, but I think you're going to see a much larger diversity. And as you have more options and more variety, this notion of a college education costing hundreds of thousands of dollars, having to take up four years, whether you're an art history major or computer science major, it's all magically four years. So someone clearly said, let's fill up four years. They didn't say, what do you actually need to know? And then I think you're going to see the cost come down uh, pretty, pretty dramatically over the next 10, 15 years when people start rationally thinking about the social return or, or, or the return on investment for even their own life. You, know, you talk about the rationality of it. One of the things that, that had not occurred to me until recently, watch, watching some of our newer crops of, um, of high schoolers go out into the world from, from around, uh, go out into the world from around the world, is how important how this social component is in the sense of there's something about painting your face and going to a football game and looking for a mate that you know is really important and that you may not want to go into an entry-level job. If you could afford it, that experience is really valuable. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see how, what, we, what we create to replace that, whether it's traveling around the world with 30 people and a mentor, maybe on you know, $10 a day, or it's some other structure. This group belonging is powerful and important. And it, in many cases, it's all that some colleges have left but I'm not sure what we're going to create to, to uh, supplement that. I, I agree with you. But what I highlight is, you know, most people aren't fortunate to go to a college where, you know, most colleges are, are commuter colleges. You're driving in, you're taking your course. They, they're, you know, they're in these large lecture halls. They're not painting their face. They're not having philosophical conversations, throwing Frisbees on the quad. Some folks are, and even there, you view colleges, this anxiety, stress, depression is off the charts. People are feeling really anxious. So it's not, working for everybody. So, uh, you know, I guess the theme of, of our conversation is do what works for folks, give them more options, um, and then and then things work out a little bit better. I, I think the um, apprenticeship uh, notion is is such a valuable one. And I, uh, I really applaud um, Acton's approach to encouraging very young kids to get involved that way. I, I think um, there's great opportunity for um, the development of apprenticeship opportunities in virtually every profession and, um, and, and, you know, done right. It could well be the alternative to uh, this, uh, you know, this question around the, the, the socialization component um, of, a, of a, a more traditional college experience. But, um, but it, it does require uh, sort of pushing up against a lot of the traditional boundaries that have been set forward around accreditation standards and all of the, you know, the, the things that protect the system as it is today. But I, I do think that uh, apprenticeships are a, a real important consideration for virtually every occupation. So we have less than five minutes left. I'd like to ask each of you, if you have 
an experiment that you would love to run? I mean, if there's something you could run that's within your realistics, we talked about lots of different things for different people. What's one experiment you would love to see run in learning uh, that might help you with this new vision? I'll throw out one that actually is front of mind right now. And actually, I do hope to run uh, this coming back to school. It's a, it's a narrow experiment, but if it's successful, it could have huge implications. And that's, you know, I touched on this notion that 70% of kids, when they go to community college, have to take remedial math. It's considered a win if they even place into college algebra. And college algebra is really just algebra one and algebra two. Uh, it, it's a huge win if they somehow place out of college algebra. And we know even at four-year colleges, uh, you're not seeing a lot of kids even place into college algebra, much less place out of it. And um, it's a huge drain on, on finances. It's, a, it's For any major, uh, college algebra is usually a requirement, and it's the biggest gating factor if you talk to anybody, any university administrator that's keeping people from, from getting there. Even if you talk to employers, I've talked to employers who say, I divide my employees between those who know algebra and those who don't. Those who know algebra, I consider them to be you know, manager, promote, promotable, things like that. So the experiment is, I wanna go into some Title I schools with a university partner, and we think we found one. You might hear about it in a few months. Um, and with historically under, under-resourced students in a Title I school, and show that all ninth or 10th graders actually can show mastery in college algebra and give them that college algebra credit by the 10th grade. And if they don't finish it by the 10th grade, not a big deal. It's mastery learning. Keep working on it. Keep trying to get mastery on Khan Academy. And once you get mastery, the university partner gives you the credit. If we did that, that by itself would, would it, could, it could short circuit in a positive way a, a lot of things that people are stressed about right now. You would, you would also short circuit a lot of university revenue, but we'll leave that aside. That, that's another good. Uh, so I'd like to ask, because it's time to sum up, if for each of you to, to take a minute uh, with your headline. And if there's something you know that surprised you today, something else you want to emphasize from what you've heard, um, just you know to sum up your vision for this new learner-driven world in one minute. Uh, Betsy, would you like to go first? Sure. And I'm going to um, feed into that my experiment as well. So my headline is believe in students, trust and families. And I would love to see one state take 100% of their resources that are designated for K-12 education and direct those into education savings accounts for every child in that state. Um, I think that would be a game changer. It would it would show us very quickly um, how the traditional system responds or doesn't respond, it will, um, it will change the equation, most importantly for those students. But I think for everyone watching, that would be a very uh, um, a game-changing uh, step to take. And it goes right back to um, the notion that I think we have to stay focused on students and empowering families putting families in control of their kids' education. And, uh, and and I just appreciate the opportunity to be here and talk with everybody today and to uh, also do a bit of dreaming with them. Thank you. Sal? The, the headline was, was do empower, don't control. And it definitely, re- I think, is very close to what uh, Betsy has been has been talking about. And, and thanks for having me here. Great to be on a conversation with both of y'all and in front of everyone, everyone listening. Uh, but I do think, you know, it's sometimes darkest before the dawn. We've just gone through a tough period, but there's a lot of silver linings. I think people are thinking more creatively than ever. A lot of the traditional constraints that we thought were there, people are broadening their aperture. I do suspect there will be a little bit of a bounce back to the way things were before post-pandemic. But I think over the next five, 10 years, a lot of what we talked about aren't, it is not going to be utopian. Uh, you know, I, I wake up every morning and I know I'm not the only one. I know there's many organizations beyond Khan Academy, uh, but this is what we're working on. We're working on the tools, the software, the systems, the examples uh, to show that this can be done and it can be done at scale. And if we're able to do that, uh, I think it's, you know, we're, we're talking about, and it's not, once again, it's not just us, it's us in conjunction with educators, policymakers, philanthropists. Uh, it could be tens of millions or hundreds of millions of lives that, that are able to more fully be empowered and reach their potential. So I think it's exciting times. Thank you to both of you. Uh, It is going to be an exciting learner-driven world, and I can't wait to see what you do next. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us. 
because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Actonline, I'm Gabriel Jaja.